0: Thank you for being here today on this Palm Sunday. Uh, what a an introduction to the celebration of Christ and uh, the great uh, celebration of Jesus as the, the one who came as king, the promised king of the one that would uh, give his life as a ransom for many, as a sacrifice upon the cross. And so we we begin this week, uh, this Palm Sunday week, and looking forward to Good Friday this week on on Friday, and then, of course, uh, Easter or Resurrection Sunday um, this coming Sunday. But we're not there yet. Uh, here today, we are looking at uh, the Word of God and yet keeping the same subject matter uh, because we are here to look to Christ and to honor Christ and all that we do and say. Uh, Because all of God's Word points to Him, and it's a privilege to stand before you again after a couple weeks being gone uh, on my mission trip uh, to India, and to be able to declare God's Word to you again. So we are finishing chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, and it's been a very profitable and fruitful study on the topic of marriage and what a, a needed and necessary topic for us in our culture. Let me just encourage you, church, um, that we are the, the, we are the people of God that are at the, the, the precipice of the last stand for the, the way in which God designed marriage. There is nobody else that's standing for God's beautiful design of uh, marriage between a husband and a wife than the church. Every other part of the world is crumbling in uh, cultural pressure and, um, and, and sin to destroy what God has created. And so the church is standing strong and it is a challenge for you and I to stand strong as the church. And this is most important for us as parents and grandparents and God's people because a generation of our young people are being swayed farther and farther away from believing what God has designed. And I'm thankful for our study in 1 Corinthians 7 because it has reminded us what God has determined to be true does not change. And that is true with uh, His design for husband and wife. You'll be reminded in Genesis chapter 2, the very uh, foundation of God creating man and woman. And in Genesis chapter 2, the Bible tells us that the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. He slept, He took one of His ribs, He closed the flesh up in that place. The Lord fashioned into a woman uh, uh, the rib which He had taken from the man and brought her to the man. That bringing her to the man is the beginning of the presentation of God's gift of uh, marriage to Adam. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. We see the very foundation here of what God has designed as this beautiful covenant relationship between a man and a woman that he has called marriage. A, a relationship that will last, uh, through difficulty, through trial, through many situations, but is built upon and focused on a relationship with God. It was God taking man and woman and bringing them together with him in the middle as the, as the very centerpiece of that relationship. And so we see throughout all of Scripture that practiced over and over again, that reiterated and, 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 and taught over and over again through God's people so that the people of God in the Old Testament would prize marriage and, and hold fast to uh, fidelity and permanence in marriage so that those who stepped outside those bounds would face the great consequences of sin for their adultery, for their immorality, all because God wanted to remind the people to be faithful to what He has called them to do as God's people. And of course, we know that marriage ultimately becomes this beautiful picture of Christ and His church. This beautiful bride that we've talked about today, that we've sung about, that God has presented to the man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and said, this is your bride, I am making it pure and blameless and spotless. So, that, so much so that Paul in, the, in his epistle to the Ephesians makes his connection for us as God's people. He writes in verse 23, The husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, he says, as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless." So here we sit as God's people, 2,000 plus years after Christ had come and and given his life and died, 2,000 years of the very application of the truth of God's plan, Him redeeming people, making them God's people by His transformative grace, so that we would be a church that would reflect the glory of God in holiness and blamelessness that's what we do now I don't know about if you've looked in the mirror lately or you looked in the the large mirror of marriage in your life but your marriage like my marriage does not look holy and blameless okay just as much as myself and my individual relationship with Christ needs work And therefore, also true, we see that it is not the promise that God has made us holy and blameless, but that He is making us holy and blameless, which is the reason why we need the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, so that he might, by His holy word, instruct us how to be a good husband and a good wife, how to value the design that God has given us. So we don't need to go to Oprah, we don't need to go to Dr. Phil, we don't need to look in the encyclopedia for how to be a good husband and wife. We need the Word of God, the eternal Word of God, to instruct us, and it needs to be the foundation of how we live in marriage. And so Paul has spent an entire chapter dealing with issues in the church in Corinth, so that they might properly understand the faithfulness and the permanence of marriage, that they wouldn't uh, forego or uh, abandon such of a good design that God had established because the cultural uh, milieu of that time called for change. The design of marriage that God established needs no change. needs no change. It is exactly the way He designed it, and it will last eternally until Christ comes again. It will last, sadly, up until the point that Christ returns. We won't be married in heaven to our spouses of earth, but we will be in a marriage relationship with Christ Himself as the church. And that's what we celebrate. And that's what we try to reflect. And so Paul has instructed the church in Corinth as he has instructed the church at redemption so that we might know how to live as married people. He's instructed those who might have the gift of singleness. He he has instructed those who have dealt with different situations in marriage that we still see today where sin pervades and conflict arises and we determined that perhaps might, we might be married to an unbeliever. Or our unbelieving spouse abandons us and therefore what do we do? How do we live and respond as Christians when an unbelieving spouse leaves and abandons the marriage? We've looked at themes such as just the overall trust of God because He has placed us in these situations by His providence. And so we have no reason to fear or be afraid that we must trust Him. And we finish this passage tonight with a few verses to consider and a final word on marriage. Now, if you have most of the common English translations of the Bible... When Brandon read the passages today, you were jiving with him. Except a few, like the New American Standard, sounded very different from what he read. Okay? I'm going to read to you the New American Standard version of the passages for our consideration tonight. If any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter... If she has passed her youth, and it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his his own will, and has decided this in his own heart, to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. But then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. I read that to you because... These verses, which I wanted to kind of keep to ourselves as as a as a, uh, a their own individual sermon, and not try to tack them onto my last sermon, they require a little bit of mental and biblical uh, strength training. Okay, what I mean by that is that we are called by God's people to know God's word. And to know God's word is to study God's word. And to study God's word is not just to listen to the preacher, but to become students of the word. And buy, buy, by meaning students of the word, it, it becomes uh, heaping ourselves with, uh, surrounding ourselves with resources that help us understand the word of God better. One of those resources that we're familiar with is our translation of the Bible that we use. ESV, NASB, NIV, so on and so forth. But with those translations, we have to come to understand that those translations are translations that are put together by a group of scholars, and those translations differ from other translations in some minor places. Our passage of Scripture today is one of them. So let me just... Let me just start off today with a statement about biblical inerrancy. What is biblical inerrancy? It's the statement and the belief that God's Word is without error and fault in every way. Okay? And I want to start off there because I don't want to be confusing, but I I want to address... Uh, the, the elephant in the room, the criticism from the skeptics of the Bible who will say, well, see, in chapter 7, verse 36 through 38, your Bible says one thing and my Bible says something completely different. So obviously there's errors in the Bible. And that's what the skeptic says. Even though the, the, the manuscripts, the historical, uh, documents that have been preserved throughout history are the most assured and without uh, variance than any other publication that has existed in all of history. Those thousands and thousands of manuscripts are the very foundation that prove that the Bible is without error. Outside of the fact that literally the Bible itself tells us that it is true. That it is pure. That it is the very words of God that have been breathed onto the page and so we can trust them. So what I'm trying to tell you is is that variances in our translations by no means should make us doubt God's Word. Okay? Because the statement of biblical inerrancy that, by the way, had to be affirmed in the city of Chicago many years ago because of the liberal push to doubt God's Word, this statement was affirmed By a group of evangelical churches across the country in order to define very clearly what inerrancy means. They write, and I quote, We affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies to the autographic text of Scripture, which is the providence of, which in the providence of God can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. We affirm that copies and translations of Scripture are the Word of God to the extent that they are faithfully representing the original. The original what? The original manuscripts, the original language. So your translations are only without error as long as they are connected to with accuracy the original languages and manuscripts of the Bible. Okay? So that's where you have to be careful. You're like, whoa, all of a sudden I have a responsibility to make sure that my translations jive with Scripture? Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, we don't leave the understanding of the original languages to the scholars because they're the smart people of the world. They've just put in the work. And if we are to live in a world where deceit and untruth reigns supreme, then we have to be people that understand the Word of God. We have to put the work in. Even if it starts small. Okay? Now my job and Adam's job and Stuart's job is to help you understand the Bible. But your tendency, as much as my tendency, is to affix ourselves to certain translations and certain people that just tell us what we want to believe instead of us actually finding out what the Bible really says. You understand? Now that, brings, that introduction brings me all to the work that I put in on verses 36 through 38. Okay? Now my challenge to you will be you go put in the work and see if your translation jives with the text, jives with the original languages in the book of Greek, in the Greek... To understand that. And if you, don't say, if you say, Pastor, I don't know how to do that, it's a great time to learn. With breath in your lungs and a functioning mind, it's a great time to start at the beginning and start at the basics so that you can understand the Bible. So I want to talk to you today about these first three verses, verses 36 to 38, as a command or a guide to fathers. Because the two variations of this text really go in two different directions, okay? The passage that Brandon read interpret basically because of two or three words. The story is is that the interpretation is, is that there's a man who is going to be... He's betrothed to a girl and he's considering marriage and the command from Paul by some interpreters that I probably would acknowledge that they are more uh, intelligent than I am, have gone to school longer than me. But listen, in the end, you have to choose a side, people. Okay? And you have to make the most logical and reasonable interpretation based on what you're given. The other interpretation that I'm going to give you first is based upon a betrothed man and his virgin, or his, as some people's translations say, betrothed. And again, you'll remember, Paul is saying, now consider the context and consider everything that's been happening in Corinth. There's more likely been a famine, there's been persecution to the church. And so, the command to this man, if that's your interpretation, is you need to really consider if you're going to move forward with this marriage because of what's happening in the world. He says, think. If any man thinks he is acting disgracefully toward his virgin or his betrothed, if she's past her youth, if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let her marry. Now that interpretation is that this man is considering the context and he's considering the desires of his own heart, the passions and and the lusts uh, of a young man that wants to be married. You following me? And so he's, hey, Paul. The, the, the interpretation is Paul is leading them uh, to say, you need to go get married. Okay? My interpretation is different, and I'm going to explain to you why. First of all, the word man and daughter are not in the text. We hinge on the idea of what a virgin is. And we've already looked at this. It basically means someone that's unmarried. Okay, It means somebody that is unmarried. So why would I consider this a father and not a man who's betrothed to his his future wife? And I think it hinges on a couple words that I think don't make sense in the other interpretation. The first is the consideration of a woman that is past her youth. In other words, it means... Has she blossomed? Is she old enough to get married? Now, we understand culturally that there were some betrothals to young girls that men had to wait for them to be married. That's not out of the realm of historical possibility. But it seems more likely that Paul would be speaking to a group of fathers talking to them about the authority and the responsibility that they have to their daughters who are virgins, who are betrothed or who will be betrothed to men at some point. To speak with such language seems more likely to be speaking toward someone that's responsible for this virgin girl, who has blossomed, who has passed her peak as history or as the grammar might teach us, literally, that she has developed mature a maturity to the point that she now can be married. Secondly, in verse thirty-six, Paul talks in a plurality at the end of verse thirty-six when he says, "Let them marry." If he was speaking to a man about his betrothed daughter, he would not speak in a plural form. But if he's speaking about a couple and a third party, then he's talking about maybe perhaps a father who is considering the responsibility of his daughter and her future husband, and he is telling them, in spite of the current circumstances, if you deem it appropriate, if you deem it necessary, then let those two people get married. Okay, So therefore, we come to, again I would admit, a very challenging interpretation. And yet the interpretation that I hold to is not about a man and a girl, but about a father considering the relationship of his daughter and the future husband in her life. And Paul giving instruction to that husband or to that father in relationship to that daughter so that he might say, consider the situation and the responsibility that you have before you. Now, as a dad who happens to have four daughters, I'm very encouraged by this passage. Right? I'm encouraged because number one. And you should be encouraged, by the way, because it celebrates the authority of the Father in the home. This is a responsibility in a, in a culture like Corinth, or even in a culture today, which I feel like the authority of the Father in the home is slipping and waning away. Paul's words still stand true as to how God has designed the responsibility of men in the home. And this very uh, context shows us how important a decision it is to be considered for this virgin daughter. She's now of age. Obviously, she is desirous of being married. Maybe she's found someone in, in, a, in a relationship. And Paul is trying to encourage this uh, fatherly parental figure how important it is to consider that authority and the responsibility of his decisions. Now, let me just encourage us, church, that this must be a continual and stressed practice in our homes today. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to advocate for betrothal in 2023 in North America. But what I am telling you is that we as a church have failed to interject ourselves into the future relationships of our children like we should. We have neglected such a responsibility because of social pressure, instead of the biblical mandate that God has given us as fathers. Let me tell you: when we get to the end of the lives of our of our adolescent children before they leave the home, the very last and most important decision that we can make is who they will spend the rest of their lives with. Now that may sound crazy. Oh, that's none of our business. We need to give our kids independence and freedom. I'm not trying to take away their independence and freedom. But let me ask you a question. Who are our children at at young adulthood getting their wisdom from when it comes to who they want to marry? Their friends. That's who they're getting their, their wisdom from. Social media. Entertainment. You know i 've said it multiple times hallmark that 's where they 're getting their influences instead of the church and and the very people that have nourished and cared and loved them throughout their lives who at a point some for some reason say, "Oh well, society says I have to take a step back now and let you make your own decisions church that 's lunacy that 's lunacy. you can take the responsible And God-given authority that you have been given fathers or mothers if there is no father. And you can take that responsibility to guide the sheep that God has given you as the pastor of your home and lead them. This is the importance, students, young people today, of the promise of Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your mother and father, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you. You know what that means? So that you may experience blessing. And that you may live long on the earth. Obeying your parents is not just some civil or relational obligation. It's the design in which God has fashioned so that you might live a blessed life. And yet we get to the point of declaring our independence where we say, you can't tell me who to marry. Right? If we're being honest, we've been there. I was there. I was there. What do my crotchety old parents know about who I should marry? They're just a bunch of old fogies that don't live in reality. And yet God has said, no, they're the very... A foundation and structure for which you can live a blessed life according to the word of God which I have injected and fused into them so fathers it's your responsibility lead your family lead your home to understand to know the importance and if you step on your kids toes in order to protect them and preserve them for a lifelong of detriment and danger in their family unit, then step on those toes as hard as you can for the glory of God. It will save them a lifelong amount of displeasure and discomfort as divorced, as abandoned, as neglected, as abused, But you don't just celebrate the authority of the father. You also should consider the desires of the couple. Paul talks about a a struggle here with the father. The father seeing the duty and the responsibility that he has and yet understanding the desire. The desire that's there with his daughter and future uh, relationship, this future spouse. And while he keeps the uh, responsibility in the father's hands, there is a consideration of the love of of the daughter with this uh, this implied spouse or future spouse. And so you must consider those desires. as as John Calvin says, the father that acts exceedingly bad, endeavors to keep her keeping her back from marriage would no longer be a father, he would just be a cruel tyrant. So, we're not calling for tyrannical authority, we're calling for loving authority. Being the very men that partner with their wives to consider in wisdom the best responsible choices for their children. And in Paul's case, in the Corinthian uh, context, you got to imagine that, that there's a, a famine going on. So let's just say that there's a dad considering uh, the, the wedding plans of his daughter who's betrothed and, and all of a sudden there's this horrible famine and people are dying from malnutrition and hunger. And on top of that, they're Christian people and they're being persecuted uh, as the church. And the father has to make a decision, is, is, is my daughter getting married at this point really a wise choice? And if that's not easy to imagine, just imagine two years ago a similar situation where everything had shut down, no chapels were open, no pastors were available for your wedding to happen during COVID. It wouldn't make it would be completely logical for a dad to go, you guys need to pump the brakes for a couple years until we get our hands and understand exactly what's going on in our world with this, this crisis that we're, we've got going on. That wouldn't, that wouldn't be too out of the box, right? And so what Paul is teaching us is that as we celebrate the authority that's necessary in this uh, guide to fathers, we should also consider the uh, desires of the couple so there's duty of the parents, there's the desires of the couple. And ultimately the point is is that marriage is to reflect a relationship with Christ. I want to re- I want to get married, dad, because I want to reflect Christ in my marriage. And to the student I would say, but are you reflecting Christ in your submission to your parents? Are you doing that? Trust their wisdom, trust their guidance. And parents, don't cling so tightly to your children that you're forsaking the the genuine desire, the providence of God that has brought these people together to be married. Just be wise in helping them move forward to that point so that they can leave their father and mother finally and cleave to their wife or husband. And so Paul's final um, statement to, as I would say, this father is, so then he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well. And he who does not give her in marriage will do better. Now why does he say do better? Because in that context, it would have been better that they not get married at that time because of the circumstances in Corinth, as I've explained. So Paul's first and final word is to fathers and secondly is to widows to widows. Paul concludes this great chapter in chapter 7, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my opinion, again, Paul says, she is happier if she remains as she is. I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Now, you'll remember that we've already looked at the word bound, and it talks about, and it's referenced here and used by Paul to reflect the permanence of marriage in a relationship between a man and a woman. The binding or the tying together is all about the, the design of God to keep and, 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 and uh, I guess, hold fast to a man and a woman in the relationship of marriage. As in chapter uh, chapter 7, verse 27, Paul said, Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife, he says. In Romans chapter 7, verse 2, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while she is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. And so Paul wants to address marriage finally and completely by dealing with those who have lost a husband or lost a wife, the widow. And most particularly, he is talking about women who have lost their husbands. Why? Because it was a great concern in the church. Imagine, women in the day of Corinth that would lose a husband, they lost their financial stability. They were not able to make and have economic uh, sustenance and provision the way that men could in that culture, and therefore it would have been a great uh, and detrimental uh, moment in their life for their husband to pass away. And you can imagine that in a world of that day with sickness and war and all the other things that happened, widowhood was a common thing. People were, men were dying left and right, leaving their wives behind. And so Paul wants these widows to be addressed in his final plea, reminding them the permanence of marriage to a husband as he lives, and of course, the freedom that a woman would have as a widow if her husband died. But notice what he says. He says, only in the Lord. So widows, you have freedom. If your husband dies, men, if your wife dies, you have freedom to find another spouse only in the Lord. That's important, particularly for women. Women who would be lured to financial stability and yet neglecting the fact that their future husband, their new husband, did not love the Lord. Therefore, entering into an unholy relationship, an unequally an, an yoked relationship that did not please the Lord who had created marriage and created them. But the physical needs do not supersede the spiritual needs, that this man should be a believer, that he would be able to He follows Christ. He celebrates the church. He could lead his new wife in holiness and godliness. So much so that I think Paul would agree, if I could put some words in Paul's mouth, it would be better that a widowed believer not marry than to marry an unbeliever. It's just that simple. It would be better for this woman to remain single the rest of her life than to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Why? Because God has always provided for widows. And most particularly, He provided for widows through the church. Do you realize that God has established a functioning body of believers that become the husband for widows? That literally God has used throughout the history of the church a ministry of God's people to provide the needs for women who have lost their husbands? Hold your place here. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We've studied this as a church before, but what a great refresher. As you find your place, consider. Consider the social pressure for women that lose their husbands. Not only the financial pressure, but the, the social pressure. Oh, you can't be alone for the rest of your life. You need to get remarried. You need to enjoy life. You need to have companionship. You need to be able to send birthday cards and, 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 and share special moments. And you need all these things. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with being remarried as a widow. But just know that it's not your only option. If the Lord so chooses for you to remain single the rest of your days, Paul's message to you is that it actually would be better. It would be better in the sense because God has used widows throughout the history of the church to actually be some of the greatest servants in the church. Paul tells Timothy in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, after he goes through a... um, what I would call a uh, kind of an evaluation of who is a proper widow in the first eight verses of that chapter. And the reason he does this is because in Paul's day, in Timothy's day, in Ephesus and other cities, because widowhood was so common, there would be widows that would take advantage of the ministry of the church. They're young, They're out in the city, they're living promiscuously, they're doing whatever they want to do, but they go to the church and they find the the, the ministry there and the the resources there and they try to take advantage of that. And Paul warns Timothy in chapter 5 verses 1 through 8 about who should be considered faithful widows. But look at what he says in verse 9 and 10. A widow, a qualified widow we might add, is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she's brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she's washed the saints' feet, if she's assisted those in distress, and if she's devoted herself to every good work. Now, what's the reason for this? Because the church would utilize... The existence of widows, so that not only could they be a help to those widows, but those widows could be a help to the church. They served, they ministered in roles of leadership and and care of the body of Christ under the elders, so that those widows could spend the rest of their days not lonely because they're surrounded by God's people and not idle because they were constantly serving the church. So that as Paul says back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that they would actually be better off, it's not because he's promoting loneliness. It's not because he, uh, he disdains marriage, because he's already seen the value of healthy, faithful widows in God's house. Serving God's people. And so an established ministry for widows existed. He recommends those over 60 that demonstrate faithfulness to serving the Lord, and they would be given responsibilities to care for God's people in unique ways, all the while the church would serve them financially. And so as we kind of wrap this sermon up, as we kind of come to a close of this chapter, we want to highlight and be reminded of why all these things matter. As I said at the beginning, they matter because they are are issues of God's people living holy lives among the, the nations. If the church reflects a poor evaluation and standing on God's design for marriage, we can't expect the world to look at us any different. But when the church stands apart as holy people set apart in, in, in holiness and obedience to God's Word, then the world will go, man, the marriages in the church are just different. The relationships between husbands and wives are different. So that when you see a, uh, a conflict arise in the relationship between a husband and a wife, and you see reconciliation and you see peace instead of divorce and abandonment, that makes it, puts a stamp on the world. So that the world can see. Because you, you, you strove to, to, to reconcile and, 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 and the effects trickle down where it affects our children and it affects uh, the relationships around us so that they might see Christ glorified in our marriages. Or we can just be like the world. We can give up on hard things. We can throw in the towel too soon. We can do all these things that don't honor the Lord. They simply make it easier and convenient for us as sinful people. I would encourage us to honor Christ, to value marriage, to fight hard and long and be faithful to those whom God has sent us as our spouses so that we might bring glory to Christ and reflect His relationship to the church in the way that He has designed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, that you have...